really hate doing this, starting a new series and then taking off next week, uh, but I'm going to do it anyway, amen? And so, um, what we are trying to do, and we have done this actually in the past, is just trying to uh, take uh, the beginning of the year, take these first uh, couple of months here on our Thursday night Bible study, and, and talk about how we study the Bible. Um, we uh, do not uh, apologize uh, for taking a dispensational approach in, in our understanding of the Bible. Uh, now, I do want to tell you, not all dispensationalists or people who use that title about themselves arrive at the right conclusion. We have some uh, I, I'd actually thought about running in my office and grabbing some books, but really uh, somebody's going to go look them up on the Internet and read them, and I don't want you reading some of these books. They're really, really bad. Um, you, you have people who want to chop up our Bible into little tiny pieces and tell us that only the Pauline epistles apply to Christians today and, and that because dispensationalism teaches us that uh, God gave different, uh, uh, different revelation in different time that we can't, uh, we can't use that part of the Bible. And, and so we have some questions that need to be answered. People uh, talk about the Bible being full of contradictions. And if you approach it that way, let me tell you something. You can find lots of contradictions in the Bible. Uh, one of them, and, and the first one, I just put this in your outline here, is uh, the commandments tell us keep the Sabbath day. Now, how many of you know what the Sabbath day is? It is Saturday, the seventh day. Now, if you um, know anything about American history... Uh, especially the turn of the last century, we had what was called blue laws. Most of those were not repealed until the late 70s at the earliest. Some of them were still in effect in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, and what they did was they said, no one can sell alcohol on the Sabbath. And they meant Sunday. Uh, most stores used to be closed on Sundays. Uh, Sunday was supposed to be a day of rest. Uh, no, Sabbath was a day of rest. Now, is there anything wrong with keeping Sunday sacred? No. Uh, it, would, it would be a wonderful thing if we could close down all these activities and, and, and just spend Sunday Worshiping God. That would be a wonderful thing. But mandating it by law is not going to make people more spiritual. Uh, we're just going to find out that people do, will do what they do. But we have Seventh-day Baptists who claim that you're supposed to worship God on the seventh day. And, and these contradictions, and they argue, and people say, well... Well, don't you keep the Ten Commandments? Oh, absolutely. I, I praise God. I've not murdered anyone, not committed adultery. Uh, but every one of us in here has told a lie at one time or another. 
The Ten Commandments read Galatians chapter 4 and 2 and 3. Read the book of Galatians. The law is our schoolmaster. The law is our teaching administrator. The principal, you might want to say. What is the principal's job at school? To make sure the teachers teach and to stop students who want to interfere with the teacher's teaching, right? That's, we got some teachers here tonight. That's, that's the basic job of the principal. Well, the basic job of the law is to remove the obstacles that stand between you and Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. So, what do we do? We, uh, I've actually heard preachers say, well, we live in the New Testament. We don't worry about the law. Well, that's not really the way it works. The Sabbath is a day of rest. God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired. Uh, not because, uh, one preacher put it this way, he burnt his fingers on, on the sun and he, uh, when he lit the sun and he had strained his back putting some of those big planets in place and God just needed a rest. No, that's, that's not it. God wanted man to stop and take notice. Read Genesis chapter 1. After every day. And God saw that it was good. You know, it would really do you well to take a little bit of time each and every week and contemplate and understand and read your Bible and think about how good our God is. The reason we get discouraged in this life, the reason we get tired, we get weary in well-doing is because we forget about how good God is. That was the original purpose of the Sabbath, is to make man stop. And also to help us understand that there is an end to work. The seed of all false religion is giving you an opportunity to earn your relationship with God or earn heaven. That is the seed of all false religion. Because when Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. You see, every day is the Sabbath for the Bible-believing Christian. Because the day I trusted Jesus as my Savior, I stopped working for my salvation and I am resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what we are trying to do is we want to understand, the Bible tells us that these are God's words. Now, we have to understand a few things about the character of God. Number one, God is not schizophrenic. Uh, God is not... Oh, but if God gave us a book that he's going to judge us by that's all full of contradictions, wouldn't that be the proper term to describe him? It would be. If God gave us a book that was all full of errors... And only a few people could find God's Word 
And the rest of us ignoramuses had to stand in line like uh, little pigs at the trough trying to get the drips of, uh, of true truth from these great leaders. What kind of God would that be? Not a good one. And yet, the Bible tells us that God is good. Amen? And we understand everything that God did is good. And we have in the Old Testament that went along with the laws, people get all caught up in the Ten Commandments and forget the 603 others that are part of the Old Testament law. So why don't we have a a burning altar and a chimney here? and, And why aren't we sacrificing animals like Abraham did, like Abel did? Like the Jewish people did at the tabernacle and the temple. And someone says, well, because Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices. I mean, that's, that's very simple to us. Well, welcome to a dispensational understanding of Scripture. You see, what it does is dispensationalism gives us a Tools to understand the Bible without violating the words. You see, there are several different ways of, of, of approaching the Bible. And when we talk about the Bible, we talk about a literal understanding of the Word of God. That simply means... That when God says, when the Bible says, God spoke and said, let there be light and there was light, that is the origin of light. We just believe that God created light with his spoken word. And if we'll read John chapter 1, we'll find out that Jesus was active with the physical working. It says, and without him was not anything made that was made, that was made. And we read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. It says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And so we see the Trinity of God. God has revealed himself to us in that way. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God. The nation, uh, religion of Islam has made a big deal about that. No, no, you believe in three gods. No, we believe in one God. But see, our God is so much bigger than yours that in order for us to begin to comprehend who he is, he has revealed himself to us in three complete, distinct, separate persons. But it's all one God. You cannot have part of God. You read the Gospel of John. You read the book of Revelation. Jesus said, I am going to leave, but I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. He said, the world can't receive the Holy Spirit because they don't believe in me. He said, and if you'll believe in me, if you'll keep my commandments, I'm going to come. And live with you. And live in you. And if you love me and keep my commandments, God the Father is going to love you and he's going to come. And he's going to live with you. You see, God never does anything 
unless God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved. But as we look, it lets us see and understand how God is working. Jesus Christ offered himself the sacrifice for our sins to God the Father whose laws were broken. And how did that happen? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. It says he offered himself through the eternal spirit. And God is working. We, um, again, I just put some questions in here. Uh, Does God change his mind? Did God say, okay, uh, Abel, I want a lamb sacrifice. And because Cain wouldn't offer a lamb... Uh, He was under the judgment of God. Then he killed his brother trying to uh, uh, eradicate God's law. And God judged Cain. And and, uh, then Abraham offered sacrifices. Isaac offered sacrifices. Everybody that believed in God offered animal sacrifices up until the time the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And someone said, well, did the animals not work and God change his mind? Well, no, study your Bible. Jesus said, before the foundation of the earth, his sacrifice was already ordained by God. But God was trying to help you and I understand his program. We will find that the Bible is one continuity. We have people today who are living that use this book called the Bible as a platform for anti-Semitism. Now, I can promise you that someone who does that has problems understanding who God is. God has not abandoned Israel. He has not substituted the church for Israel. You see, a misunderstanding of this truth of The place of Israel, the place of the church, the kingdom of God, is the reason the Roman Catholic Church initiated the Crusades in the Middle Ages, trying to set up God's kingdom. It's why Islam is running around killing people today, because they believe it's their job to set up God's kingdom. If we will take a consistent, literal understanding of the Scripture, you know what we're going to find out? That Jesus is going to set up his kingdom without our help. That's not the church's job. The church is not here to straighten out the world that Jesus couldn't fix. And yet, that is the theology that many people hold to. And what we want to understand is that as we approach This book called the Bible, there are people running around claiming that they do the same miracles that the apostles did. Uh, We're rather skeptical of that. Uh, They have offered uh, uh, some of these investigative news reports, have said, bring us one bona fide organic miracle that, that we could evaluate, that we can prove somebody who who was crippled, somebody who was in a car accident and had their legs broken or tendons uh, where they could not walk and you touched them and all of a sudden they could walk. He said, we'll believe you. 
Uh, there is not one recorded organic miracle in the entire quote-unquote healing movement that is out there today. There, there have been some people that we would call these inorganic problems. That's if you receive a certain type of emotional, uh, even physical trauma, you can lose your eyesight. You can even lose the ability to walk. But there's nothing physically wrong with you. It's in the nerves. It's in the mind. There are people who will just have sat in a room staring at a wall for years because something happened and the switches in their mind shut off. And uh, apparently one of these faith healers has provided enough trauma to re-traumatize them and turn back on the switches. This is what we call psychological healing. Uh, there are some times where that has happened, but that's not an... Or- are you following me here? It's a little technical. That is not an organic miracle. And uh, that is the best since 1906 that the faith and healing movement... And, and people say, well, why, why don't you have those signs and wonders? Jesus said signs and wonders would... Follow those that believe. Well, hey, they did. Read the book of Acts. And uh, I I wish they made uh, advanced algebra and trigonometry required learning. Uh, Because what the purpose of those things are is to teach you how to think. You see, in trigonometry, you have what is called a proof. You, you might have 13 to 20 steps to work out the problem based on the limited information that you are given. But if you take that limited information and then begin to compare it and contrast it and work certain formulas and get out your, um, your uh, tables. Uh, is anybody here old enough to remember a sign table where you actually looked it up in the chart? Yes, I got some nods. Okay, I'm not the oldest guy in the room here. Amen. Uh, but uh, today you have a calculator and you just push a button and there it comes. But in, in, in those days, you, you actually, in the back of your mathematical book, it had a sign chart, a cosine chart, a tangent chart. And you would put your figures into the chart and trace it over there and find the answer. You could then take the function of the information that you had, put it back in your equation, and all of a sudden you could figure out the rest of the problem. Well, now you're only halfway there. Because once you get the answer, now you've got to go back and prove the answer by working your problem backwards. Now, is everybody thoroughly eye-glazed and bored to tears? No, uh, I hope not. You need to understand something. The reason that is important is because every student had to arrive at the same answer using the same input. You see, that's what we call objective understanding of the facts. Every person can arrive at the same conclusion. You see, if it was subjective, 
Well, I don't feel like the square root of 4 ought to be 2. It ought to be just, you know, like 1.895, you know, something like that. And uh, that doesn't work now, does it? You can't build buildings with mathematics like that. It's got to be objective. It's got to be repeatable. You've got to be able to get out your tape measure and come up with the exact same formula that the architect did or, or the engineer who put things together. And, and this is what we mean when we talk about a literal approach to the Bible. These words, this information, Jesus said, here's the proof. The apostles lived the proof. Once you've proved the problem, why would you reprove it? Why would you go through it all again once you already have the answer? There's only one of two reasons. One is because your teacher is some mean, sadistic person who just wants you to do busy work. The other problem is you didn't get it right, and you're wrong, and you have to start all over again so you can arrive at the right answer. Now, let me tell you, God is not interested in busy work. He proved it in the book of Acts. So there's no need to go back and reprove something that God has already proved. That violates the principle of faith. Are are we still all together here? I know we've gone a circuitous, circuitous route here. But, and, but, see, what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with literally thousands and thousands of ideas concerning this book called the Bible. Everybody has their own interpretation. It will be to the next person that tells me, well, that's your interpretation. Uh, Because that's not the way the Bible was designed to work. We have an objective faith. God has given us information that if we will take what is written down, we can all arrive at the same conclusion by taking the input of the words in their context. That's literally. You see, there are people who believe that the Bible should be interpreted allegorically. Now, that term, allegory, comes from the idea of hidden meanings. Does anybody remember the Bible in Code book? It was written about 20 years ago. Uh, Let me explain how he did it. Your Bible, your King James Bible, is made up of roughly one million characters. One gigabyte of information. That's all the letters, periods, spaces, everything. And so what this fellow did, how many of you remember the word searches where they give you a big block of letters? And you, Well, he took the Bible and made it uh, a matrix, 10,000 uh, characters by 10,000. And then began doing word searches, trying to find hidden meanings in the Scripture. And when he couldn't find anything on 10,000 by 10,000, then he began to shift and change all of those dimensions. And 
could I promise you that if you took a million characters and, and begin to manipulate them in, in squares or rectangles or uh, uh, hexagonals or whatever you want to do, you could actually come up with all kinds of words just by the probability of manipulating letters. Could I challenge you, that is a subjective approach to the Scriptures, and you cannot verify subjectiveness. That's one of our problems with the American legal system today, is we have moved from an objective legal system to a subjective legal system. You you just don't know what this poor, innocent, little axe murderer went through as a child. Lawyers say that kind of stuff. And you're just sitting there going, wait a minute. History is replete with evils perpetrated by mankind against their fellow mankind. Even parents against children and things like this. You do not have to resort to that kind of behavior when we have a God who forgives sins and will help us. Amen? So, we have a Bible that says what it means, that means what it says. I've given the example many times, and I'm going to just push through this one. On the day of Pentecost, if you turn on TVN, it will tell you, a mighty rushing wind filled the room. And I even heard of preachers talking about the papers being blown all over. They didn't have papers in those days. The scroll of Isaiah was four feet tall, 60 feet long, and weighed almost 100 pounds. The wind that it would have taken to blow that around the room would have done a lot more damage than just... uh, They did not have what we talk about. What someone did is they're not even understanding what the Scriptures say. Read the Scriptures. What does it say filled the room? The sound filled the room. Do papers need to move for the sound of mighty rushing wind to fill the room? Absolutely not. And then they talk about the tongues of fire being the baptism of fire that John talked about. Were the tongues made out of fire? No. They were like as of fire. Read what it says. And it sat on their heads. If they were real fire, it would have burned them. And God was not into that. And there is no connection between John's baptism of fire and the day of Pentecost, because John's baptism of fire goes to the word unquenchable, which is the lake of fire. Could you be baptized in the lake of fire? Yeah. Eternal damnation versus eternal salvation. Jesus is the baptizer of both. He gives us salvation, and he will be the final judge at the great white throne that will determine who ends up in the lake of fire. Again, we're going to go through this in more detail as we go on. When we talk about literally, we're just talking about words. We're talking about the mechanics. We're talking about the simple pattern 
of the words in their simple meaning. One preacher put it this way, if it makes common sense, seek no other sense. And we're going to add a few little things to that in in a moment here. But the other thing that we're talking about when we're talking about literal understanding is it must be kept in its context. Uh, The historical setting, when Mary and Joseph took the flight into Egypt, they didn't go through TSA pre-check and get on a plane. Amen? They actually fled. Uh, They took a faster, it was an emergency trip. That's simply what it means when Jesus told John, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. There was no pain involved. He was just simply telling John, If you want to be obedient to God, you must baptize me the way that God ordained baptism. And so we talk about the historical setting, the cultural setting. In the book of Ruth, Ruth sneaks into the threshing floor as they were threshing the wheat and getting the chaff and getting the harvest in. And she uncovers Boaz's feet in the middle of the night and lays down at and puts her back apparently against his feet in the middle of the night, and wakes him up. Now, that would be a very strange way of communicating today. Uh, But that was, and when Boaz woke up and realized someone was there, he's he's like turning over and and saying, and she said, uh, would you put your skirt over me? And what she was doing under the instruction of Naomi, was asking Boaz to perform the, the, the duty of the kinsman redeemer. Nothing untoward, nothing out of order. Now, if you snuck into someone's apartment in New York City and laid down at their feet, I think there would probably be several laws that had been broken along with a lot of ethical things that you just shouldn't do. Uh, different cultures. Don't try to reread some immoral activity into the book of Ruth because it's not there. And yet people do these things. When the Bible says Jonathan and, and David loved each other, well, I'll tell you what, there's some really perverse people that want to make some things out of that that aren't in your Bible. This is historic cultural. If you're going to keep it literal, you have to understand these things. You have to understand grammar. Uh, grammar was, is not an exciting subject until you use it to help you understand the Word of God. Then, then it's exciting. I love diagramming sentences. You know why? Because it tells me where the action is coming from, where the action is going, where the antecedents are, all of those different parts of the speech, they are important if you're going to understand your Bible. And the biblical setting. What we mean by this is that if one under, if your understanding of one passage of Scripture violates your understanding of another passage of Scripture, you got a problem. The Bible doesn't have a problem. you got a problem. 
and it needs to be fixed. Dispensationalism is the toolbox that allows us to go through and take the apparent contradictions in scriptures and the differences of culture and, and historical setting and keep it all in the biblical setting. Now, we have a few overall guidelines that we're talking about. 2 Timothy 3.16. If you've not memorized this verse, you need to memorize this verse. All Scripture, if you know it, say it with me. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You see, I've got several books in my office. In fact, I even talked to the author one time because he said, listen, uh, you, you can't... The Sermon on the Mount was not written to Christians. It was written to Jewish believers. Oh, really? Well, then, why did Jesus say... If you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, well, that's, that's a Jewish thing. That's not a, that's not a Christian thing. And sitting here going, well, okay, so we don't have to love other people? And we, don't have, and we can judge all we want? And, uh, well, no, no, no. But wait a minute. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, there are some promises that were made to physical Israel. They don't belong to us because we're not Jews. But again, I can learn from the promises that God made to Israel, can I not? And they do have an application, and there are things that we need to understand. 2 Timothy 2.14 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, there's something about doing a project and doing it right. Some of you remember when we built this pulpit here. Poor Brother Franz, he he had a problem. Because there was another six inches on top of here, another six inches out, or almost a foot there, and poor Brother Franz would stand here, and the pulpit was just like that. And it, it just bothered him. And so, we got out the chop saw and cleaned that off, and now everybody's happy. You know what? We, we had to tweak our work. We did every, it's a whole lot easier to cut it off than it is to put it on, by the way. And so we made it as long as we could because it just wouldn't, could not know exactly uh, how everything was going to work until it was there. And then we realized, well, you know what, we just need to shorten that up a little bit. And uh, guess what? I think that looks pretty good centerpiece here. Nothing to be ashamed about here, is there? You see, when you do things right, we're talking about Answering not to me, some church board, we're talking about answering to God. And I'll promise you, if God calls your understanding of his word into question, you are going to be ashamed. And you may 
run a great risk of losing eternity with God. So, we, we must be careful. This, we are not trifling with the Scriptures, but it does take study. We believe that the door of revelation has been closed. Turn with me, if you would, to Second Timothy chapter 2. Now, Paul was writing to Timothy. Timothy was his, uh, if we would use a word that's used a lot today, his preacher boy. He was the one that trained Timothy in the ministry. He had left Timothy at the city of Ephesus, a great, huge church to keep things going there. And he was writing Timothy. And look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now, Paul is telling Timothy, the things that I have taught you, the things that you have heard about me, the things that you have been able to confirm that I have taught, I want you to commit those to faithful men in the church you are pastoring. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's go back to our long and tedious discussion of objective and subjective faith. If Timothy's faith was subjective, how in the world could he obey what the Apostle Paul said here? How in the world could the Apostle Paul give him direction to present something that was movable, changeable. Uh, uh, one of the phrases that people like to use today, well, we just believe the, uh, the Constitution is a living document. No. The paper was never alive. The words were never alive. They were the embodiment of the direction that those men gave to run this country. It is an objective collection of words ordered by which our country derives its direction, or used to anyway. Um, The same was true here. Paul was talking about specific doctrines that had already been taught to the church, and he said, I want you to take what you have and give it to men who can take that same doctrine and commit it to others. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, He says, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have received, let him be accursed. He said, if we are an angel from heaven, the Galatians had everything they needed when Paul wrote the book. And the Bible ends in the last chapter with some of the strongest warnings in all of the Scripture. If you take away the words of the prophecy of this book, again, we're going to keep it in the context. Its direct uh, uh, import is to the book of Revelation that John wrote itself. But there is an application. He said, if you take the words out of this book, God's going to take your name out of the book of life. Now, that is a terrifying thought. 
And if that's not bad enough, he said, if you add to it, God's going to add to you the plagues that are in this book. And, and if you've read anything at all, the book of Revelation, uh, the word plague is terrible and complete and worldwide. Uh, you do not want that on your account. How about just taking a simple application? Don't mess with the words. Amen? But see, if I'm going to approach the Bible allegorically, what am I doing? I'm messing with the words. I'm changing things. You see, you cannot be a Calvinist and be consistent in a literal hermeneutic. can't do it. By the way, you can't be Catholic and keep a consistent literal hermeneutic. What has to happen if you're going to be a Catholic or Orthodox in your theology is you have to accept the rule of dogma that the church holds the right to interpret the words and change the words. The Pope has made claims that he can change anything that's in the Bible at will, and he is speaking for God when he does that. Now, that's pretty cool if you're the Pope, but it doesn't work if you're going to take a literal understanding of the Scripture. And so, what these rules that we have to follow... All Scripture is to be studied, rightly divided, understood, and it is profitable. So we can't cut our Bible up and say parts of it don't apply to me. We've got to keep the whole Bible together. We've got to study the whole Bible. We've got to realize that the Bible is the only thing we have to study. But here is the golden rule that makes everything work. If it doesn't affect the way you live and serve God today, let God take care of it. Until you've taken care of everything in the Bible that deals with how you're going to live and serve God today. And I promise you, by the time you've done that, you'll be in heaven. Amen? Uh, We do not need to run amok following all of these things. I have met men who have spent their whole life trying to identify who the Antichrist is. Now, let me ask you a question. If you knew the identity of the Antichrist, would it change one little bit in how you live today? No. But it sure would give you a great excuse because you're so busy studying that you can't go out and pass out tracts. And you've got to buy all the books and you've got to search the internet and so you don't have as much to give to missions. Uh, let me tell you something. You want to be practical. The book is, the Bible is not a theology book. The Bible is God's manual on how to live today for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what makes a difference. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, all of these gifts are worthless. I'm a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal without what? Now, if you have one of those newfangled Bibles, it says without love. If you have a King James, it says without charity. What's the difference between charity and love? Action. Ah. 
So when I live the love of God, what am I experiencing? Charity. That's the difference between false theology and real theology. Is false theology is, how do you feel about it? Wow, look at this great, uh, look at this beautiful theological model that I have built here. I always liken that to the little baby who finally figures out, uh, who hasn't quite figured out those fingers are attached. And they're just laying there looking at their fingers moving. Uh, Don't be that kind of theologian, my friend. Be the kind that lives today. So, when apparent contradictions occur, and they are in the Bible... Here's our general rules. Number one, we wait until God raises the level of our understanding so that we can work through the contradiction. Number two, we'll study other passages that talk about the same thing. You never interpret an obscure passage, uh, a, 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 an obscure passage without using the light from passages that are very simple and straightforward. This is where you run into trouble. And you have to make sure, you have to check and double check. I have lots of books in my office, commentaries, and even more on my computer than I have on my shelves, and I try to to reference those after I've studied the Bible. Not before. Not to study the Bible. I want to make sure that my mind hasn't put something in the Scriptures that only my mind can create. And every one of us is capable of doing that. If you're the only person smart enough to figure it out, guess what? You just figured wrong. Uh, read Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Amen? So, the, the example is Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. And I'm running out of time here. Let's just quickly go there. Uh, This is a very simple one. We've been through it several times, but let's just look at it tonight. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Now, verse 4 says, You don't answer a fool according to his folly. Verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly. Now, is that an apparent contradiction? Well, it can be until you read the rest of the verse. See, each one of them comes with a warning. If you don't answer a fool according to his... I mean, uh, if you answer a fool according to his folly in verse 4, what are you going to do? You're going to be like the fool. Verse 5, if you don't answer him according to his folly, he, the fool, is going to be wise in his own conceit. See, I'm smarter than you are. You can't answer my question. So what is the synthesis of these two? If you're going to waste your time debating with a fool, you lose. That, that is what Solomon is trying to teach. No matter what you do. Do not get into conversations with people who have already rejected it is finished by Jesus Christ. Because all you're going to do is either you're going to end up looking like a fool or you're going to make the fool think he's smarter than you are. Neither one is a good thing to have happen. 
Are, are we together on that? I mean, if you've been around here long, we've been through this more than once, so I'm just trying to move quickly here. So, we've covered these points on what dispensationalism is. Uh, the emphasis here is not on the timetable, please. As we study dispensationalism, the easiest thing in the world is to say, ah, oh, okay, I'm going to put it by a calendar. No, that is not the emphasis. The emphasis as we study the Bible is on God and on His revelation. And we will study that. And the consensus here and people want to, there, there are always people who are going to do things differently. But if you follow this pattern through your Bible, you will find that each one of these divisions are very natural and complete and totally sensible in our scripture. We have the dispensation of innocence that is creation to the fall. What happened? Sin entered the world. So God then made man responsible directly to God. That's why it's called the age of conscience. How did that work out? The world became so vile that God had to send a flood. And by the way, the flood surely explains about the dinosaurs a whole lot better than the meteorite does. Anyway, we'll keep moving. After the flood, God takes the responsibility for human government... And he gives it to man as a society. And what does man do? Builds the Tower of Babel and says, I'm going to build a tower unto heaven. And we're going to make a world that doesn't need God. So God comes down and confounds their languages. Now they can't do it anymore. And God narrows his scope and finds a man named Abraham. And begins his work with the seed. And Abraham is the father of all those that have faith. It is called the dispensation of promise because God made promises. And they were not fulfilled in Abraham's life. Some of those promises still have to be fulfilled. But things changed when God brought Israel out of Egypt and he gave them a law. Now they had a written word of God. Now they had an objective law by which every man, woman, and child who claimed to be a part of Israel had to judge and order their lives. And the penalties were quite severe. Well, the law reigned until Jesus, it is finished, and his resurrection satisfied every demand of the law. Now we live in the dispensation of grace or the church age. And that will continue until the rapture. Or actually until the uh, Armageddon, the end of the tribulation period. And then Jesus will come. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. It continues until Armageddon, the end of the tribulation period, when God fulfills all of the prophecies in the book of Revelation except one. And there he will set up his kingdom. And Jesus Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years. Then we enter eternity future. You know what that is? That's just our nice little way of saying we have no idea what's going to happen. But we'll let God take care of that. Amen? And as we look at the scope of our Bible, you'll find that these events are natural divisions that things change. And we'll actually over the course of this study, give you a chart to go through 
so that you can actually help visualize the progressive revelation that God gives. You can see the differences. Uh, uh, one word that is used often, the word dispensation and the word economy are very close words. And an economy is not just the exchange of money. It is the system by which finances are exchanged. And God has developed these systems built upon revealed revelation. And so, uh, yes, we are going to get a little technical, uh, I, but uh, I, I don't believe in just dumbing down the message. Uh, I, I like to teach so that you can get it and understand and grab it. And there's, uh, don't be afraid when when you're done with this, you, you're not going to be saying, "Wow, preacher is so smart." You're, you're going by God's grace. You're going to be saying, "God is so smart," and I actually understand what God's trying to do here. It actually makes sense, and you will have tools. When somebody comes up and says, oh, you have an allegorical approach to Scripture. You can blow them right out of the water. What's that? Well, that's what you're doing. You're changing the words of the Scripture. Or you've got a dogmatic approach to the Scripture. You're taking someone else's words of what the Scripture said instead of the Scripture's words for what they say. Hey, we... We want to give you the ability to have a reasonable and working faith in God that helps you understand why we need to live the way we do in our present day and age. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the patience of those here tonight. And Lord, I just pray that as we go through this study, that uh, you will... Help me to follow the rules of the study and keep things practical. And, and Lord, that we would be able to take these uh, complexities that man just loves to interject into the simplicity of your word. And we'd be able to remove them, see through them. And Lord, that you would give us a simple faith in the word of God. Lord, a faith that will help us understand how wonderful and how incredible our salvation is. Why it's eternal. Why it's based in the works of Jesus Christ and not in the works that we can do. Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us an appetite for learning. that, That we would take these things and be able to assimilate these facts and Put them in such an order that even the younger children that are here in this uh, auditorium would be able to grasp these truths and work them in their daily lives as they're reading your scriptures. Lord, we ask you to work in our hearts. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just have the piano play.